It's the Carson McKellar Center's weekly Weave Me. This week's episode is from an interview with Natalia Tomeskin, an award-winning writer from Columbus, Georgia, who recently worked on the fourth season of the Netflix original series, Dear White People. This segment of the interview has been edited for time and content. Um, all right, so I want to talk about Carson McCullers. Um, you have taught the work of Carson McCullers at CSU, and in fact, you brought your students to the Smith McCullers house for a house tour. Um, and I had a great tour guide. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> um, how did it go over for you, teaching our hometown famous writer? I mean, how did, how did your students respond? Were you surprised, or I don't know, how was it? I think they really liked, we read The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. I think they mm-hmm. really liked reading it. That whole semester was supposed to be, we were reading pieces inspired by Columbus in particular. Mm-hmm. So we had, we went to Ma Rainey's house. We mm-hmm. looked at um, a poem about Ma Rainey and we read uh, about um, Carlton Gary and the Big mm-hmm. Eddie Club. Um mm-hmm. But this was sort of our only novel that we looked at. And what I think people were struck by, especially when you pair it against the Big Eddie Club, which is such a sensational and kind of horrible uh, picture of Columbus, is that it felt very real for them. I think the way uh, McCullers wrote Columbus, even though it was you know, written about a Columbus that none of us were alive to see, Mm -hmm. it felt like almost it teetered into nonfiction, I think, for a lot of us reading it. Hmm. Um, And I know that, you know, I I look forward to talking about the way she treats race, but I will say that that class was about Mm -hmm. 50-50 black and white students. And we talked a lot about race in the way she paints it in the book. And I think in general, people felt really... um, I think there was initial anxiety. We're reading a book written by a white woman who's telling us what it is to be black in yep. Columbus. Yep. And then we read it and discussed it as we're reading. And I think people were like, yeah, right mm-hmm. on. I'm feeling it, you know? So that was wonderful. I think it was a perfect, um, it was proof to myself that you don't only have to write what you know mm-hmm. personally. There are ways to write through other people's experiences with empathy and mm-hmm. thoughtfulness, and she does that very well. Well, you know, that leads to the next few things I wanted to ask you about. Um, one is, in your play, Lawn People, you depict mm. and largely center the story on a Hispanic character. Did you worry about getting it wrong uh, when you were doing so that? Much. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I so so what was that like? It was awful for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that play initially was supposed to be my thesis play from a master's program and I I'll never forget we did a read a table read with the actors of that draft and I guess I had watched West Side Story too many times (laughs) I had had one of the characters say like something like I I look forward to going to America right Mm mm-hmm they were like, yeah, nobody says that. Uh, it would be Estados Unidos, right? Yeah, so I was right. like, woo, that was, that, that was the moment I was waiting for that I knew was coming. And that almost made me not ever want to touch it again. 
Um, When I went back into it, I stopped thinking about it as a political project. I think that was my first sense of what I was trying to do. Mm -hmm. And I almost thought I could news article my way into these characters. Mm -hmm. And it only got good after I just tried to imagine how it feels to leave my kids. I didn't have kids then, but to leave my family behind to be excited about something that seems like it has a lot of potential, something new. We can all feel those kinds of things. As soon as I started to lean into that kind of human connection with the character and her arc, the other stuff went away. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not, not specific to the Mexican immigrant experience, but I realized that that because that's not my experience, I'm going to lean into what I do know, which is, for example, my mom is an immigrant from Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Her mom left all the kids in Jamaica to start making inroads in New York and wasn't home for two years. Talking to my mom about how that felt to not have your mom around. Did you resent her, even though you knew what she was doing was supposed to be for the best for the family? You know, I found points of entry where I felt like this is my story, too. I understand. Yeah. Um, and then it improved. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Well, you know, I'm sure you know about um, Carson McCullers. Uh, this is something that Carlos Dews and I talked about in, when I interviewed him. Um, you know, Richard Wright wrote this famous review of The Hardest Lonely Hunter, where he says basically it's the first uh, book by a Southern white writer in which she shows the same sort of empathy for her black characters as she does for her white characters. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he, he um, holds it in high regard. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a great compliment that he makes. And um, at the same time, Hilton Alls was here uh, in mm-hmm. 2017, and he's a big fan. And um, uh, that's why, you know, the library and, and the McCullough Center brought him here to talk, and he, he was great. Um, uh, I also gave him a house tour, which was fun. Uh, and fun. he was, oh, yeah, he was taking pictures of everything, and he, wow. uh, he said, we love her. Uh, but, <laughs> yes. uh, but he also <laughs> said, he said about Heart is Lonely Hunter, he said, you know, there are places where it's sort of unintentionally racist. For instance, hmm. uh, she has these things about um, uh, the black neighborhoods smell different and things like that. And, hmm. uh, and, and he was like, and, you know, I've, I've, I've thought a lot about that. And there are places in the novel that give me pause. Um, And at the same time, I do feel like there is something about McCullers. She has a sort of sensitivity. I don't know. I don't know if there's a better way to describe it. And, um, you know, it it just I don't know what to say about that, except that it it seems like if you're starting from the right place, Mm -hmm. uh, that that's that's the the main thing. Um, You're not always going to get it right. I don't know. How do you feel about that? I think that that's probably all correct. I think that she knocked it out of the park, but not flawlessly. Mm -hmm. I think if you wanted to go through the novel and find all the racist comments, you could probably fill up a couple pages with them. I was just going back through some of my favorite scenes. um, And one thing that, for example, jumped out at me that I don't really remember because it's not important in the grand scheme of the story was the way she talks about Portia doing her hair and that her hair was, I think, oily and tight. And one thing about, let's just have a quick black hair moment. But one (laughs) thing about black hair is that it's actually dry. That's kind of our default. Yeah. So I was thinking to myself, is it oily because that's the way she internalized what black hair is like? Because we put oil in our hair, Right. right? 
Yeah. So it was one of those moments where I was like, okay, she's white. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> <laughs> that being said, I also thought, well, she could have just oiled her hair. It doesn't really yeah. matter. It doesn't affect the story in any meaningful way. So that's where, and that's where I get a little bit tiresome with this overdoing uh, kind of the picking apart of every little thing that we do as a culture right now, because sometimes that I think muddles some of the more important conversations. Mm, Um, For example, one thing that I think she absolutely nailed was the feeling of black rage, Mm -hmm. which I don't know how as a white woman, she really understood that, but the way she writes that in um, to Dr. uh, Copeland, Copeland, I was about to say Coleman. Yeah. Dr. Copeland's character is, uh, it's its tough because I remember tripping up over how he says, I could feel the black coming back into me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what does that mean? It's like, it's blackness inherently like evil or like, you know, stressed hmm. out or, but then I'm like, you know what? Actually, it's, I can feel the black that's projected on me when I'm in what it feels like to be black. I can feel mm-hmm. that rage, that anger, that frustration that things aren't moving quickly enough. And the way that that character, his arc, or the way he's written his monologue in that scene where he's given the award, it's just right. that level of desperate rage is so... And looking at it again in light of what's going on in the country right now, it's just so right on. Mm-hmm. I love that. Uh, we asked you if you would read a passage from McCullers, nice. and mm-hmm. so I'm wondering if you'd like to do that now, and maybe if you'd want to set it up and tell us what the, the passage is and why uh, you chose this particular passage. That'd be great. Sure. So I'm choosing a passage from somewhere in the first third of The Heart is a Lonely Hunter between Portia and Dr. Copeland. Mm-hmm. This is the scene where she's come from work, at the Kelly's and she's sitting down to try to have some dinner with her dad and just talk. And the reason that I I chose it is because, especially as a parent now, you know, it really resonates on so many levels when I think about their relationship. Um, I've already kind of talked about my appreciation for the way Dr. Copeland is is painted in the book, Mm -hmm. but I also really appreciate Portia. And I will say I trip up sometimes in the lingo or uh, sort of you know way yeah, the, her dialogue is written yeah the, you know i have that is that is one of the things that gives me pause and i feel like here's my i'd be interested to know what you think but i yeah. feel like that McCullers is trying to she's stacking the deck right she wants mm. to make this show this difference between the doctor and his daughter and all of the th- and i mean i think you know, it, it's interesting. He, she has empathy for both of those characters and sees yes. their, both of their points of view, right? But yeah. I've almost felt like, you know, I've, I, I sometimes wonder if you didn't stack the deck a little bit too much. And <laughs> especially, much. yeah, a little, and especially with, with Portia's speech, you know? Yeah. Well, it was that moment of, I guess I wasn't there, and maybe that's really, you know, the slang. I, the yeah. way that I hear it is in the context of vaudeville or something like that, you know? Right. But I think what she's done with Portia's character is actually, like you say, very um, sensitive and empathetic. And I chose the scene because 
her dad is so determined to find reasons to make his case that black people are not being treated properly and that they need to make a change. That's he's consumed by that. Whereas Portia is somehow able to stay present despite all of the stressors. And when I think about black women and what it feels like to be a black woman, a black mom, a black uh, employee uh, that's female, I feel we, we just have a, obligation to know how to stay positive and bear whatever is happening and so i love that it also is talking about gender Mm -hmm. and the way that a man can be upset uh about injustice and the way that a woman might suppress Mm -hmm. or just see different things um as important Hmm. so that's why i i like this part okay great all right so They sat silently at the table before the supper. Portia kept looking up at the clock on the cupboard because it was time for High Boy and Willie to come. Dr. Copeland bent his head over the plate. He held the fork in his hand as though it were heavy and his fingers trembled. He only tasted the food and with each mouthful he swallowed hard. There was a feeling of strain and it seemed as though both of them wanted to keep up some conversation. Dr. Copeland did not know how to begin. Sometimes he thought that he had talked so much in the years before to his children and they had understood so little that now there was nothing at all to say. After a while, he wiped his mouth with his handkerchief and spoke in an uncertain voice. You've hardly mentioned yourself. Tell me about your job and what you've been doing lately. Of course, I'm still with the Kellys, said Portia. But I tells you, Father, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to keep on with them. The work is hard, and it always takes me a long time to get through. However, that don't bother me none. It about the pay I worries about. I'm supposed to get $3 a week, but sometimes Mrs. Kelly lacks a dollar or 50 cents of paying me the full amount. Of course, she always catches up on it as soon as she's able. But it has a way of leaving me in a pinch. That is not right, said Dr. Copeland. Why do you stand for it? It ain't her fault. She can't help it, said Portia. Half the folks in that house don't pay the rent, and at a big expense to keep everything up. I tell you the truth, the Kellys is just barely keeping one jump ahead of the sheriff. They having a mighty hard time. There ought to be some other job you can get. I know, but the Kellys is really grand white peoples to work for. I really fond of them as I can be. Them three little children is just like some of my own kin folks. Feel like I done really raised Bubber and the baby. And although Nick and me is always getting some kind of quarrel together, I have a real close fondness for her too. But you must think of yourself, said Dr. Copeland. Nick now, said Portia. She a real case. Not a soul know how to manage that child. She's just as biggity and headstrong as she can be. Something going on in her all the time. I has a funny feeling about that child. Seemed to me that one of these days she's going to really surprise somebody. But whether that's going to be a good surprise or a bad surprise, I just don't know. Nick puzzled me sometimes, but still, I really fond of her. You must look out for your own livelihood first. And I'll just pause there. So, yeah, I just love yeah. that piece because, um, you know, she is complaining, but she's also trying to take the pressure off them at in the same breath 
Yeah. Whereas Dr. Copeland continues to say, right, right, you know, wake up, you're not being treated well, you need to go somewhere else. I just, I found that, uh, you know, an internal conversation between two black folks, there's got to be like some kind of bestial ch- test for black people, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, are we having two black folks alone talking about, um, you know, whatever's really on their heart. And so for her to be able to kind of capture that this way and to, like you said, set up these characters that are at complete odds, but that love each other and want to try to stay in dialogue. It's so much tension. Like just the dramatic yeah. tension is just fantastic. And they're both eminently likable. I mean, they're both sympathetic oh, yes. characters completely. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is amazing. And I, and I do think that is one of the um, great parts of the book, the relationship between mm. uh Dr. Copeland and Portia. And then, you know, of course, in light of what's going to happen in the book, the, mm-hmm. the tragedy of all of that. And um, uh, it is so poignant. Uh, yes. But uh, it, it is pretty, it's pretty amazing. It's a pretty amazing part of it. Um, yeah. Great reading, by the way. So thank, thank you, you very much for doing that. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Carson McCullough Center's Weekly We of Me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more at McCullerCenter.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast was brought to you by Columbus State University's Carson McCuller Center for Writers and Musicians and by Columbus State University's Recording Studio. The music you heard during the intro and outro was written by Lilia Uge in honor of Carson McCuller's 100th birthday on February 19, 2017. I'm Ryan Worley technical director for these podcasts, and I hope you have a great day. Additional music used during today's reading is called Steal Away, Traditional African-American Spiritual, performed on October 10th of 2017 by the University Singers under the direction of Dr. Ianthi Marini, courtesy of the Schwab School of Music.